All right, Father, thank you so much for tonight. I ask that you'd bless us. I ask that your spirit would empower us to uh, face the issues going on in our lives financially, because that's what the talk's about. I ask God for the courage not to look away and for an openness to hear you speak against biases and childhood experiences and learned behavior and reactions and stuff that we're carrying we don't know we're carrying. We ask that you'd retrain us so that we can make money, uh, save money, and give money away for good causes without being wrongly related to money. In Jesus' name, we ask God that you'd put power on the youth group, that you'd lift up the name Jesus, that whoever's talking over there, it's probably Kate, I don't know, but if whoever's talking over there, that you'd help them, that you'd open the young people's hearts, that you would put discipline in their daily lives, that they would learn rhythms and rituals that would serve them well to keep them in your presence all their days. Amen. So the topic is money. I'm going to start with just seven, I think seven, let me count real quick, seven statements about money. And then I want to end by sending us to, I hope you guys have smartphones, because I want to end by sending you to take a, a, like a quiz that will measure. And if you don't have it, I'll email it later or, me, or message you guys later. Well, then you get it later. Okay, so I have a QR code, but I'll, I'll send the link to the prayer thread or, or e and the email or whatever later. But I have the questions, too. So you could do it on paper with a pen, but all right. First thing is starting with statement number one about money. And I, I put this first for a reason. God is our provider. It's one of his names. He is our provider. He is our provider. He is our provider. I know a lot of us feel completely like it depends 100% on us, but God says the only reason you can have strength is because I give you strength, and the only reason your wits will work is because I make them fruitful, and I am your provider. When they were in Egypt, they had the Nile. It would flood, and it would go out, and it would flood, and it would go out. The, the, it, was, they, they, it was so easy to trust that it, they were going to have enough when they were around the Nile. Because they would flood and then the soil would be so rich when it retreated because it had just sent all this wonderful sediment everywhere that was just full of nutrients. Then they go out into the wilderness and the first thing they have to learn is there's nothing there if God don't feed them. So they went from a place where they, had, where they were used to depending on provision from below and he took them on a journey where they had to depend on the invisible God to provide from above. And, he, and it, he's like, the whole point... The whole point, I wanted you to know, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from my mouth. The same God that provided the manna wanted them to learn a lesson from the manna. Your life source is not natural, but supernatural. He wants, them, he wants us to depend. God wants us to depend on him for our daily bread. I know we're, we're in such an affluent country compared to like all human history that this When's the last time you prayed for your next meal not knowing where it came from? I can't remember a time I prayed for my next meal not knowing where it would come from. I have so much stuff in my fridge and freezer. Like my, like my family's headed off to the store to get food way before we run out of food. In fact, I can't remember a time we've run out of food. But every, all the children think we've run out. There's nothing to eat. Translation, there's nothing I want. But like, 
Christians before us all over the world and Christians right now in other parts of the world, they have come to know God as provider in a, in a different kind of a, of a way than we have. You know what I'm saying? The missionaries I visited in India, they know what it's like to, to tell the children that we're fasting and praying. And what are they fasting and praying for? They know. They know that. I don't know that. They know that. Okay, God is our provider. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus, these are words of red. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? Is not the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. By the way, that's good theology. God loves the birds. We have a good father. And, he wants to, he, and Jesus doesn't want us to worry when we have a father like we have. That's his point. You have this kind of a father. So don't worry because this is who you have as a father. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And can any one of you by worrying at a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor. They don't spin. It's a repeated theme. It's not their diligence that earns them this. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. So don't worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. Verse 33, Matthew 6. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen. The principle of Sabbath says, for one day a week, I'm required to let go of the illusion that everything depends on me. If I can trust God to, to, to keep my world from chaos for one day, then maybe when I pick my work back up on Monday, I can still hold that same trust. And instead of picking up my work and my worry... Maybe I can pick up my work, but keep that, that heart posture of trust. That, And then there's the thing of like every seven years, they were meant to let the, like, don't plant food. What the heck are we going to eat? In, in, you know what? And he says, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cause your crops to be triple the year before. And that's not principles working for you. That's miracles. Yeah. Do you see the difference? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not specifically responding to, to what you said. I'll have to think about that and maybe, well, you know what I say, and this is cliched because I say it so much, but that's also, a, when something's cliche, it's usually because it's really true. So my thing is, Evan, you should definitely talk to God about that and not, not one time for a big healing moment, but as often as those anxieties come up, make them a matter of conversation with the Lord. Do you know what I mean? So that's, okay, point number one, God is our provider. Point number two, about money, 
money's a blessing, so it's really a compound sentence. Money's a blessing, but greed is a vice, and generosity is a virtue. Money is a blessing, but greed is a sin, if that's an easier word for you than vice. Money is a blessing, but greed is a sin, and generosity is a virtue. Some of us have, have uh, sort of turned money into being evil. Money's evil. Money's evil, therefore people who have it are evil. People who don't have it are good. But darn it, we sure do need it. So I guess we can ne- you can never win. Are you, are you hearing what I'm saying? Oh, those darn rich people, they have it because they're evil and they went after it. They shouldn't have gone after it because trying to get money's evil. But we wish we had it. But aren't you glad we don't have it? It's just a bunch of contradictions in there. Whereas some three true statements would be, money's actually a blessing. And you can go through the whole Bible and show that money's a blessing. But greed is a sin and generosity is a virtue. So, okay, so here's some statements under that heading. Jesus said it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom, Matthew 19, 24. And when he said that, it was shocking. Not just to the Pharisees, it was shocking to his own disciples. Because their worldview was set up. They'd read the Old Testament. They'd seen the fact that God, God promised to financially bless his people if they obeyed him. Didn't God promise that all over the Old Testament? All over the Old Testament. If you'll obey me, I'll bless you financially. So all the people of Jesus' day thought that if you were rich, it was was an evidence that, that you were pleasing to the Lord. And that if you were poor, it was an evidence that something about your life is ungodly. Are you with me? So Jesus says, actually, money makes it hard. Money's a snare. This is what he says. It's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's he saying? Well, I'll let you guys work on that in a second. Then he says, Luke, blessed are the poor. Whoa, 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 wait, what? Blessed are the rich is our whole biblical theology, say the people of Jesus' time. Now, is Jesus saying you can't go to heaven if you're rich, but you'd automatically go to heaven if you're poor? No, poverty's not helping anybody get to heaven. And, and, and neither are riches. But he's attacking their assumptions hardcore. Okay, John the Baptist, do you guys remember when the people came to John the Baptist seeking you know, counsel? What do we got to do? Because he's like, repent. Jesus is coming soon, repent. The kingdom's, it, here we go, repent. And they go, what do you mean specifically? which is a great question. Do you guys remember what he said? Stop taking advantage of people. If you're a tax collector, stop collecting more than you need. If you're a soldier, stop taking advantage of your position as a soldier to just take people's stuff. Every, and if you got more than one coat, give one away to somebody who has zero coats. Every single piece of advice John the Baptist gave had to do with attacking greed and reinforcing generosity. That was the only issue John the Baptist even dealt with, which makes sense because I think something like of, modern, of the surveys done, the single greatest stressor of Americans polled has to do with money. And by the way, being rich, it doesn't mean just, we sometimes think rich people, they have money as their God. No, 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 friends, anxious, poor people can be just as obsessed with money. Greed, greed doesn't have anything to do with how much you have. It has to do with what rules you, what dominates your heart. And so John the Baptist just hammers 
the only issue he hammers is greed. I wonder what he'd say to us. You know, uh, affluenza. Okay, what did I say there? Money's a blessing, greed is a vice, generosity is a virtue. That's where Jesus flipped it on its head. It's like, because the theology of the, of the time was, if you're rich, you're blessed. If you're poor, you're not. And he flips it, you know? Okay, okay that's called money status. And we're going to talk about that. You're onto it. And also, here's the thing, guys. You might be rich and might be poor in the same lifetime. And if that doesn't define you, you can be okay in both. That's what, that's what Paul talks about. Okay, uh, number three. God's financial principles are sound. If you follow the Lord's principles, you'll have a tendency to make money and keep it and stop wasting it. Stop losing it. It's true. So like John Wesley saw this principle. He would lead people to Jesus who were spending all their money on alcohol. They would stop drinking altogether. Then they would also show up to work. (laughs) Go figure. They would make so much money. They got so much more done when they weren't drunk. And, and the next thing you know, they had money. And then, then, then he said, suddenly their temptations shifted. They were tempted before to just blow all their money on alcohol and women and dissipation. Now they are tempted to think that they are better than others. And see, see their temptations shifted. The money didn't make them evil. It opened them to a new, a, a new set of, temp, of things to navigate. And he's like, oh, my word, you've become, it's just like us when we come to Jesus, we're the younger brother. But after we learn the rules and start doing what we think God wants us to do, it's really easy to start judging those who aren't doing what we think they should do. And now we become the older brother. It's this new set of temptations. God's financial principles are sound. All right, let me give you just a few of his financial principles. Here's one. Work hard. Or you don't eat. That's 2 Thessalonians 3.10. No freeloaders. No, that's what, he's, that's what Paul said. If a man shall not work, he shall not eat. Isn't that just feel good to say? I love quoting that to my children. This is literally a sentence that you hear in my household. Did you earn your food yet? You'll hear Tim say that to the kids. Okay, so it's just like my buddy who called me the other day. He said, are my fears... I'm going to draw an app... A, a parallel application. My buddy who called me saying I'm afraid of death, he said, is it a sin that I'm afraid of death? I said, insert name here, I said, if I hand my little kid a 50-pound bag and I say, hold this, it's not a sin that they can't hold it. They don't have the strength. But if I hand it to my 16-year-old and he throws it on the ground and says, I ain't doing that and walks off, I said, there's a difference between rebellion and weakness. Okay, Stan, so the application here would be, if you are disabled, elderly, or whatever the issue is, the, the, you can still contribute stuff to people, right? There's still work that you can do, but it might not be work that makes it as easy to make money. Yeah. You know, and the point of making money is to not just take care of your needs, but to have something to contribute to others because we as Christians are about others. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the Holy Spirit comes on us, and then, we, and then Peter says... Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others. Ah, oh, that just makes me happy. You know, and by the way, it's whatever gift you have received, not, 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 not gifts you wish you had. It's, it's what Evan was talking about, and he's like, he wants to figure out the thing each of us in the band does best and basically set us there and kind of, that way the whole band shines more. 
because right now we're all kind of filling in different spots and whatever and doing it. But the point is, Stan, no, it's not a sin for you not to have abilities that you don't have, but use what you got. Use what you got. And so like the, the church says, if someone's sick or old, their family is the first group that's responsible to care for them. It doesn't say, well, I guess they just don't have legs. I guess they're going to starve. No, that's silly. Number one, work hard or don't eat. I'm sorry, this is number three. God's financial principles are sound. I said work hard is, is principle one. Uh, another one, don't rob God. Don't rob God of his tithes and offerings. In fact, it's the one, it's the one thing where he actually says, test me. Bring in the whole tithe, Malachi chapter three. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and see what I do. Again, this is not principles working for you. It's miracles working for you. So don't rob God. This is, this is uh, again, miracles, not principles. We talk a lot about principles, but this isn't principles. This is miracles. God says, I'm going to do, if you give me money instead of the principle of now you have less, I'm going to do miracles and provide for you. That, that's, that takes faith, guys. That takes faith. Because I remember back when my faith was so small on this that that was what I told people was, well, the only promise I can make you on tithing is if you give the Lord 10%, you won't have it. But you should still do it. And what was the verse about the promise? Oh, Malachi, Malachi 3.10. Okay, 3.10. Yeah, test me and see what I do. Bring in the whole tithe and see what I do. Uh, money reveals priorities. This is another principle, God's, God's principles, or God, the, sort of the Bible's, uh, what did I call it? Financial principles. Money reveals priorities. You want to know what, what matters to you? Look at what you spend all your money on. And then the other thing is it doesn't just reveal priorities. What you spend your money on actually guides your affections. It's the one, two, three, four principle. You know what, what verse I'm talking about? One, two, three, four. Two follows one, three follows two, four follows three. Luke 12, 34, where your treasure is, there your heart is. Because I always expected he should be saying, where your heart is, there your treasure is. And he actually says the opposite, which is really empowering to me, which is really empowering. Because what that means is if, you, if, if, if the kingdom isn't your priority, you can start to give your money and your time and your attention to the kingdom. And the next thing you know, it will begin to take up more space in you. Because your affections will follow your connections. Here's another one of God's principles. Save. <laughs> There's a, Proverbs 21.20 says that a wise man's house is full of treasure and oil, but a foolish man already spent it and ate it. As soon as he gets it, he has no self-control. He has, he has no, oh, it's all immediate gratification. I do what I feel. I don't have self-control. I can't, I don't think ahead. Now, now, me, me, you know. I can't wait till Tuesday. I can't wait for three months. I can't wait to, yes, I'll buy it now. I'll swipe the card. I won't save up. I just want it now. That's a fool. A, a, a wise man has treasure and oil in his house. A foolish man spent it already. Proverbs 21, 20, save. Another principle, be generous. Proverbs eleven twenty five. 25, a generous, uh, this is just one verse among like tons. A generous person will prosper. I'll go so far as to say that generosity and hospitality in the Old Testament are how Jews recognized a saint from a pagan. When you show up as a stranger in a town, who cares for you, who invites you in, who feeds you, and who shares their food with you, that's a righteous person. The town that tries to rape you needs fire from heaven. I know that sounds like an extreme example, but those, that is straight Old Testament story, I'm telling you, right out of Genesis. 
If you welcome the, the guests, sometimes you're welcoming the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or as Hebrews says, looking at the Genesis story of Abraham with the visitors, says, some have even entertained angels. Hospitality and generosity are just... And by the way, hospitality stretches me so hard. Like, if you just show up to my house and I don't know you, and you come in, or you ask to come in, oh, I'm an American. You know what I'm saying? In Europe, they'd be like, okay, great. You know? Oh, man, my neighbor. Oh, this was so awesome. New neighbors have moved in. She's a school teacher. Uh, daughter's friends with Mariah. Um, the other day, this happened literally yesterday. Carrie says, did you know Rodney mowed their yard? I said, what? Yeah. He didn't even know she had a broken toe and her daughter had arthritis. He just saw their yard was long. He mowed their yard. When she went over and thanked him, he said, welcome to the neighborhood. I, I went to Rodney then last night and I said, Rodney, thank you so much. I said, that actually made me cry. I, it's a special thing, dude. It's a special thing. By the way, uh, today's my big sister's 47th birthday. So I wrote her a letter, and I knew it was going to be late, so I took a picture of the letter I wrote her and texted her a letter. With my, with my, with my dip it in the inkwell pen. It was the second draft, because the first draft, and then I said, okay, what do I need to edit? And then I rewrote it as carefully as I could to look pretty. Then I took a picture of it, and I sent it. And I knew that if I had actually mailed it, it would have been even more special. Because I think it goes like this. Text message, uh, voice call, um, typed letter, handwritten letter, in terms of specialness. Not in terms of emotional transparency. The voice call face-to-face is always superior. But, in, yeah. And, and I don't even know, what does postage cost nowadays? I'm that's so cheap, it's stupid. If it was a dollar, it would be a steal. I get to hand somebody something and they take it the rest of the way around the world? That's craziness. That is wild. So what was it? Be generous was what I was... I'm so ADHD. Uh, be generous was where we were at. Um, <clears throat> don't buy what you can't afford. That's the final one that I'm... There's more. I'm just going to give you those. Don't buy what you can't afford. <clears throat> I'm thinking of starting a um, get-rich-quick scheme... Here you go. If you don't have the money, don't buy it. The end. <laughs> you were going to say something? No, that's... that's what you were going to say? I went on a fragrance buying. I, this is relevant. This is, yeah, that's the point I'm going to make. I went on a fragrance buying like tirade. I was, I was researching and buying colognes. And then, and, then, and, then, and then one day, a bill came in the mail for a credit card thing. I didn't know we had any credit card debt, and the number was like $10,000. It became an issue between the two of us. See, she was still used to when she was a nurse, she could just work an extra weekend. The adjustment of being on a fixed pastor income, that was part of the adjustment, was, not, was having to go, oh, I can't just 0% APR the broken van and the Christmas gifts and catch up like I used to with no debt because I caught up quick. Now it's this card is 0% APR. I'll transfer that one over to this one and I'll just bounce debt. Well, we're not paying interest so I can. And the next thing, and then I didn't know it was happening. Did you know 
80% of marriages in America, the spouses do that stuff without telling each other. 80%. I'm, I'm just being transparent with you. So I had like 60 bottles of cologne that I thought I had collected with money we actually had. It turns out I was stealing from those credit card companies to buy colognes. Not, not because I used credit cards to do it, but because I owed them and I was buying stuff for me while I owed them. I didn't realize I was a slave. So that day when I realized we're slaves, because if you have credit card debt, you're a slave. That's what the Bible says, that the borrower is slave to the lender. That was a hard day. And, and my wife and I, we're not in that place anymore. We're, not, we're, not in that, we're actually in the green now. We're, we're no longer in the red. We're in the green. And things are better. But I'm telling you guys, that stuff, that's how that happens. And like that day was the last cologne I bought. 60 bottles, seriously? Oh, you should come and see. I, I like fragrances. <laughs> I, I, so one of these days I want to bring the whole collection. <laughs> Don't buy what you can't afford. Don't buy what you can't afford. Borrower, slave to the lender, Proverbs 22.7. Okay. Is this too small? This is awesome. So now on to number four. Both rich people and poor people can be godly. The Bible shows us both. Let me give you some example of rich, godly people. Abraham was wealthy. Genesis 13.2 says Abraham had become exceedingly wealthy. Jacob was wealthy by God's blessing. Both of these guys, by God's blessing. Remember the whole thing where he's working for his uncle Laban? God's blessing him. And, and actually, he's blessing him because Laban's mistreating him. Uh, the ladies who supported Jesus' ministry, Luke chapter 8, were wealthy. Some rich women were the, financial, <laughs> were the financial supporters that enabled Jesus to go out and be 100% about the kingdom work instead of having to you know, work with his hands every day to make money and then only be able to minister in the evenings. That's a huge blessing. That's, by the way, that's my situation. Y'all are why I was home studying my Bible today instead of working a regular job to make money and then trying to figure out on the way over here what the heck to talk about after having not studied the Bible all day. It's, I'm very grateful. Joseph of Arimathea. You know this story? It says explicitly, a wealthy man inquired about what was going to be done with Jesus' body, and he said, put him in my tomb. Joseph of Arimathea, a, Matthew 27, 57, a wealthy, godly man who made sure Jesus' body was treated with respect. And he's still... If you go to an Orthodox church, they have engravings and phrases, and they have this phrase that says, Joseph of Arimathea laid him in his tomb. And I'm like, how amazing is that? Now, poor and godly. The widow who gave more than everyone else with her one might. Luke 21. James says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom? And Paul says, that's James 2.5, and Paul says, not many of you, when you were called, were wise, important, wealthy. But God actually seems to have chosen the people the world's overlooked and undervalued and ignored to be really receptive to Jesus. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Uh, then Paul says, Philippians 4, I know what it's like to be poor, and I know what it's like to be rich, and I've learned how to be okay in both. Job, he was rich, and then he was poor, and then he was rich again, but he was the Lord's the whole time. 
Okay, here, here's point five. This, this is the one Stan was talking about. We often equate our worth with our net worth. In other words, we think our status has to do with our finances. If I'm poor, I'm down here. If I'm rich, I'm up here. If I'm working class, I'm in a comfortable middle. People do this, which is why the Bible has to exhort people to not mistreat the poor. Because there's a contempt implied, and that has to be pushed against. So God says, Deuteronomy 15, give generously to the poor and do so without a grudging heart. And then because of this, the Lord, again, miracles, not principles. And because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor in the land. Therefore, I command, see, this is not, he doesn't go where you think he's going to go. There's always going to be poor in the land. So why bother? Right? Have you ever seen somebody returning the horseshoe crabs to the upright position and putting them back in the water? And then you say, there will always be horseshoe crabs upside down. Total dinosaur, I agree. They're prehistoric. There was one, I thought, stuck between these rocks in this creek. I, I, I built like a dam across a creek when I was a kid and then put the, the flat, like shale kind of a stones, almost like a, a countertop over the stones. So the, so the creek was running underneath our little walkway and we would lay there on it. We would even cook steaks on, on a fire right there on the creek. And one day I came back and there was a huge snapper and he was what looked to me to be stuck sideways in between the rocks, one of the pl- spaces where the water would run through. And I thought I was going to help, help him get unstuck. He snapped at me and I said, die then. And later on, <laughs> later on, he was gone. I, I, know, I think I know what he was doing. He positioned himself to be like, I'm just a rock. Swim past my face, I dare you. Do you know what I mean? And I screwed it up by getting in his bed. Get out of here. I'm, I know what I'm doing. You know what I mean? I'm messing up his little hunt. Oh, those guys are evil. We got to get back on point. <laughs> there will always be poor in the land. That's, and that led me over to the horseshoe crabs. And the horseshoe crabs got us to the turtles. That's funny. There will always be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. The Bible exhorts us not to show favoritism to the wealthy for the same reason. So the Bible has to exhort us not to be withholding from the poor and not to show favoritism to the wealthy because of the relationship that money has to status in the human societies. Always. It's such a temptation to look up to the wealthy. Oh, they must be so much smarter. Tell me about your secrets to success. You're amazing. Can I get your autograph? Oh my word, I have the goosebumps. And then the poor guy comes in and you're like, ew. And that's that's why these commands are necessary. You know, so James is like, why do you put that guy in the special chair? And then you make, no, you come sit over here. Because that's what we do with money. We turn it into a status thing. Number six, that was number five, right? Status. Number six... Oh, what was for? Yeah, yeah. Both rich and poor can be godly. Number six, money can't buy happiness. Let's talk about that. We all say that, right? But how, how, how many of you have figured out that if you literally can't pay the bills, the radiator's busted and the electricity's off, uh, there's a certain amount of happiness that money can buy. So this, what the actual studies show is that among the poorest of the poor, the lack of money is a happiness factor. Quality of life is not good. Somewhere in the middle, 
Quality of life starts to get much better as money increases. But did you know that as money increases, quality of life stops increasing at a, among, up, up, across a certain line? And that's intriguing. So you say, you can't buy happiness. Okay, well, when your bills are paid, it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier. But the pleasure you get once your needs are met from being able to just buy whatever you want, that's not happiness. That's pleasure. And that pleasure is short-term. And that short-term pleasure of, I went to Hawaii for a week, that's not the same as actual contentment and peace and happiness. And I know people who literally believe, but if I could, then I could go to the next place and the next place and I could buy the next thing and date the next girl and get the next car and the next house. And I could just keep that going until my life was just an endless sort of serotonin, oxytocin, all the little dopamine things going. No, you're wrong. There's a, happiness really is an inside job. There's a little pleasure we can get. I, I sometimes will, will intentionally go, I, I should probably buy a little something because I, I default towards save. Sometimes I go, I should probably buy a little something. Just a little $5 something gives my brain just as much joy as a $500 something because my brain doesn't know the difference. It is good to spend a little money on things that make you happy. But it's not good to think that that's going to like lead to lasting contentment and happiness. Yeah, and this becomes a super big problem when somebody becomes controlled by compulsive desires to, um, to purchase items to get that feeling. And that's compulsive purchasing. Compulsive purchasing as, as a... <laughs> I'll just look over here, horse blinder. I know that a lot of us have the stereotype that really rich people drive a Lamborghini, they live in Hollywood, they fly wherever they want, whenever they want, they dress with expensive clothes, they wear a Rolex. Do you know what I'm talking about? They got four houses. They got a vacation home, they got a regular home, they have wait staff. You know, their favorite food is probably caviar or some nonsense. Actually, that's not true. The people who, who flaunt it are usually in major debt pretending to be rich. Those are the people who flaunt it. Those are the people who they associate richness with status, and as a result, they're trying to project a status they don't have, and they're in huge debt, and their lives are a crazy, chaotic mess. The genuinely super rich, they're the cautious, fearful people that think that their security is in plenty, so they tend not to spend the money they make because they're almost anxious about spending money. They live in a normal house. You don't know they're rich. They drive a normal car, and they wear normal clothes, and their favorite food is a hamburger. Nothing glamorous going on there. There's a guy who's super millionaire, multimillionaire rich, owns restaurants and hotels. And when he's in Florida with my, out to eat with the guys at the breakfast, he won't order breakfast. He orders hot water. And yeah, he orders hot water. He, what does he get for free? He puts some, something in there to season it. And then he has the free crackers with the free uh, apple butter. And then he doesn't tip the waitress either after sitting there for two hours with the guys. And his buddies called him on it. They said, insert name here, this is why, this is why your relationships are crap, dude. And he goes, I know I have a problem. Bro, that's why he has all that money. He has all that money because of that same thing that makes him so hard for him to spend money on his own breakfast and then tip. See, which is interesting, so he can't enjoy the pleasure or the security that the money is promising him. 
This is why I'm so impressed with people who have tons of money and they are reinvesting that money in things that help people. I want them to have some nice things. But what's so amazing is when they have their own nice things and then they go, that's not really meaningful. You know what's meaningful? Helping people. A lot of people spend the first half of their life trying to acquire money and then the second half of their life trying to acquire significance. Right? To, uh, like a legacy. Okay, number seven. This is my last one. Attitudes about money. This is no longer biblical points. This is just attitudes about money. Attitudes about money are usually learned in childhood. Our attitudes about money are usually unconscious. They're not things we know we believe. They're things that drive what we think about money. They're usually learned in childhood. They're usually unconscious. They're usually passed down through the generations. So if your grandma and grandpa lived through the Depression, they might have taught your parents to cut coupons and never spend, and then it might have translated to you. Or you might have done the exact opposite out of extreme reaction. Okay? Uh, but here's the deal. A lot of us hold attitudes about money that are partial truths, not, not truths. And our, it's actually our... It, here's a theory. Go with me on this thought exercise. If you took all the money in the world and you divided it equally... And then, you, and then you just let, let people live as they live. Exert no control. Just take all the money, divide it. That's all on planet Earth right now. You divide it up equally. And then you add 20 years. You know what I think? The people who didn't have money before, 20 years from now, they won't have money again. The people who had all the money before, 20 years from now, they'll have it all again. Attitudes about money are a major factor. I, I ran into a financial counselor named Brad Klontz who, tried, who realized as he was giving people financial counsel that, oh my word, childhood experiences are, are, are really the biggest factor in, in my clients being able to make, save, spend money wisely, make good choices. And he started to become fascinated, and then he started to do research, and, and, and he's developed these four, what he calls, money scripts. And maybe you can put it another way. These four belief systems, attitudes, that he finds as common, unhealthy attitudes, that he finds as common among us. And he even developed a test to measure your and mine, and I took it today, and I was highest on, well, I won't tell you, it doesn't matter. Okay, so... The top stressor in the United States, I think I said this earlier, is financial. At least the ones... Does that, res, does that resonate? Is that... Yeah. Okay. Here's some disordered money behaviors that this dude identified. Compulsively buying. Compulsive buying. Uncontrolled shopping urges. Pathological gambling. Hoarding out of irrational fear of lack. Workaholism, which harms your relationships. It harms you emotionally. It harms you physically. Financially dependent on parents partners, friends, financially enabling, where people are dependent on you. And that's actually where, enabling is when helping is actually hurting. You know what I mean? I'm keeping you from changing by keeping you limping along, vaguely functional. Financially denying, this is a big one, man. It's too stressful, I can't think about it, maybe it'll just get better on its own. In fact, I'm so stressed that I think, babe, let's go out to eat. I'm so stressed. I need a new car. 
I am so stressed about all this credit card debt. I can't handle this right now. We got to go do something to make me feel better. You know? You know? And this is why I say, well, yes, go do something to feel better. Like McDonald's. Or like make a sandwich and go to the river. But you know what I know? Preaching to people about this kind of stuff, it's not, it's not helpful. Dude, I know better too. You know, you think I don't know? I know. Yeah, it's not a rational process. It's an emotional process. And that's what's driving these scripts is emotion. Emotion around money. Okay, and we haven't even told you the script yet. I'm about to. Credit card debt is, is a, such a massive one. I think we'd just be doing this whole country a favor to be biblical. Do you know how much God hates unfair usury? You know what usury is? It's, it's, it's interest on loans. The Bible outlaws the kind of the $40 slushy, right? When I had no money and I, and I didn't keep perfect track of how much money and I spent... I bought a $3 slushie, which I never buy a slushie, but you know what I mean. I don't do sugar, really. But let's say I bought a slushie, and I, went, and I overdrafted, and they charged me 40 bucks. Who's paying the 40 bucks? The poorest of the poor. That, that, just deny my card. No, but we wanted to provide you a service. Okay, financial infidelity. I already talked about that a little bit ago. The 2010 survey revealed that 80% of spouses admitting hiding money or hiding expenditures from their spouse. Hiding money from your spouse because you know, if they know I have it, they're gonna spend it. Or hiding expenditures knowing if they knew I was spending this, we'd have conflict over it. And I just don't wanna have conflict over it. Uh, women tended to be more likely to buy clothes for themselves or gifts for others without telling their husbands. Husbands were more likely to buy alcohol or music without telling their wives. This is not sexism, this is just data. It's nice when the data can't, you can't accuse me of sexism. The data said that. Not, I didn't say that. The information did. Here's the four. Are you ready? The four scripts. Number one, money avoidance. Individuals who score high on money avoidance believe that money is bad or that they don't deserve money. Money's bad and I don't deserve money. The money avoider sees money as a source of fear, anxiety, or disgust. If I had a bunch of money, I'd be terrified. I'd be terrified my friends wouldn't, wouldn't be my friends anymore because it would put me in a different group, and I want to stay in this group. Money avoiders usually have a negative association believing that wealthy people are greedy, wealthy people are corrupt, and that there is virtue, moral superiority in being poor. And in our heads, we would say, oh, I don't, that's, that's, that's stupid. But what does your gut tell you? You see what I'm saying? Your gut and your brain, not the same. And Appalachia and the Deep South. Anywhere where most of us are, are, are poor, okay. At the same time, money avoiders are likely to hold the conflicting belief that if I had more money, my problems would go away and my self-worth would improve and my social status would improve. Contradiction. But the heart doesn't care about contradictions, does it? No, it doesn't. As such, money avoiders may vacillate between the extremes of holding great contempt for money and people who have money, and at the same time placing way too much value on, on what a savior money would be if I had it. That's money avoidance. Yeah. Money number two, money worship. Money worship. 
At their core, money worshipers are convinced that the key to happiness and the solution to their problems is money. <laughs> Actually, more money. Because what do you want when you got money? More. more. How much? More. Always. At the same time, they believe that one can never have enough and they will never, ever really be able to afford the things they want in life. The tension between believing that more money and more things will make me happy and the sense that I can't get there tends to result in a chronic overspending in an attempt to buy happiness. Money worshipers are more likely to have lower income, lower net worth, and to be trapped in a cycle of revolving credit card debt. Money worshipers are also more likely to spend compulsively, hoard possessions, and put work ahead of family time. And to try to ignore uh, or forget about their financial situation through spending money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they're also more likely to give money to others in an attempt to um, show them that they have money, even though they can't afford it. And they end up usually being very financially enslaved to others. That's money worship. Money, money script number three, status. People who hold money status scripts see their net, wor their net worth and their self-worth as being synonymous. They may pretend to have more money than they do, and as a result, they risk overspending in an effort to give people the impression that they are financially successful. And they believe, this is so interesting, if I live a virtuous life, God will make me rich. That's fascinating. My financial needs will be met if I'm virtuous. Successful, people are only as successful, and I believe that I see this everywhere where the word successful is used. This is usually what people mean. Success equals money. Look at how the word's used. Successful. Money. People with money status issues usually have lower net worth, interestingly, lower income, and they tend to grow up in families with lower socioeconomic status. People with money status beliefs are more likely to be compulsive spenders, to be dependent upon others financially. They're more likely to lie to their spouses about their spending. Holding to money status beliefs is also predictive of pathological gambling, and they may gamble in an attempt to win a huge sum of money because in that huge win, it's proving to themselves and others that I'm somebody. Money as status. Final one, money vigilance. Money vigilance. Alert, watchful, and concerned about their financial welfare. The money vigilant believe it is important to save and it is important for people to work for their money and to never be given financial handouts. And if they can't pay cash for something, we're not buying it. They are less likely than others to buy on credit. I hate credit, by the way. I, this, I, I'll just tell you, I scored highest on this one, and they told me, why don't you spend some of that money and enjoy it? I was like, well, I don't have much because I'm not married to someone who has my... <laughs> so I ferreted away in a secret hubby, cubby hole. I have a thing of cash that I kept a secret. Carrie knows it's there. She's been steadily whittling it away. Okay. They have a tendency to be anxious and secretive about their money, except with their closest friends. So, so if you ask somebody who's money vigilant, how much money you got in the bank? They ain't going to tell you that. They would much prefer to talk about their sex life. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you're like, that's horrible. No, that's less horrible to them than that one. Because this is really like, no, no. No, none of your business. I don't want you to know where it is. I don't want you to know how much it is. I had a dude show me his gold supply, by the way. He took me under a staircase and was like, look at all this. This is $18,000 of gold. And I was like, why are you showing me this? Money vigilance appears to be a protective factor. In other words, a lot of time, the money vigilant, they're living with a, a big fear, fear of lack. Like this is the answer to their fear of lack. Security, security, I want security. I need security. It's actually not an offensive, I want to win. It's a defensive, I don't want to lose. Control. It's fear of lack. Yeah, control, security. While such an approach does encourage frugality, excessive wariness can create an anxiety that actually keeps them from enjoying both the benefits the money could afford them, like take a trip with your wife, buy a present for your, you know, fix, fix somebody else's car. Use that money to build friendships and help people and eat some food. Buy a nicer shirt. There is nothing wrong with you getting a swimming pool. There's actually nothing wrong with you having a Rolex watch or a BMW for crying out loud. Sometimes the more expensive vehicle is the better value. The cheapest sometimes breaks down so much that you might as well have gotten the expensive one in the time. By the time you're done, like the Kirby vacuum, it's a thousand dollar vacuum, but it's lasted us 18 years, 19 years. It's the last vacuum I bought. See what I'm talking about? And I thought I was a moron the day I bought that thing. That thing saved me so much money. And now, see, we did it. We bought it on a credit card. We paid it off before we paid one bit of APR on it, but I still hated it so bad that we were doing that. that I was pressured and anxious. Credit cards freaked me out. Because <sighs> this is my type. This is me. I'm the guy who's like, don't spend, don't spend, don't spend. And over, this guy, this guy right here, he won't buy anything that he hasn't thoroughly researched and made sure he's getting the best possible price. I tend to buy things used or refurbished or open box. Because I'm going, just when I was pulling in, I said, I just bought a Zoom P4. I researched for like eight months to make sure I wasn't getting the wrong product. And then I bought it refur refurbished, which be basically means somebody looked at it and then put it back in the box and sent it back to the store. And I saved $70 on it because of that. I bought it for 150 shipped. What am I trying to say? This is me, guys. I'm that guy. My computer's refurbished. The screen has a little blip in it because it was refurbished. This is me. These are $17 on, on Amazon. Welcome to Tim. Okay, ready for the test. I'll just read you some of the questions. You're supposed to rate them strongly disagree, disagree, a little bit disagree, agree, strongly agree. So here's the questions. I don't deserve a lot of money when others have less than me. Things would get better if I had more money. Most poor people don't deserve money. Disagree with that. You should not tell other people how much money you have or how much money you make. Agree with that. Rich people are greedy. Uh, more money will make you more happy. You can have love or money, but you can't have both. Disagree. It's wrong to ask others how much money they have or how much money they make. It's not okay to have more money than you need. I feel like you guys are actually answering in real time, so that's kind of fun. I'll just stand over here. <laughs> yeah. Wait, what was that question? That one. It's not okay to have more money than you need. 
There will never be enough money. I'm never going to buy anything unless it's new. Oh, man, I have. Poor people are lazy. Money is what gives life meaning. People shouldn't get handouts. Good people shouldn't care about money. Ooh, that's a churchy belief, isn't it? Yeah, good people don't care. Your, wor- your self-worth equals your net worth. If someone asked me how much I earned, I would probably tell them I earn less than I actually do. <laughs> he just sent it back. How much you make? I make $10 more than you. <laughs> if, some, if something is not considered the best, it's not worth buying. You should always look for the best deal before buying, even if it takes more time. Most rich people don't deserve their money. Money will solve all my problems. People are only as successful as the amount of money they earn. If you can't pay cash, don't buy it. If you have less, that's how virtue is formed. That's kind of what's one. I have this thing that I say to my wife. Wouldn't it be a great adventure if all we had was like two cans of food left? Wouldn't that be a great adventure? Live on spam? And she just looks at me like, you need help. (laughs) Money corrupts. You can't trust people around money. Rich people have no reason to be unhappy. Spending money on yourself is extravagant. Being rich means you no longer fit in with your old friends and family. Hey, if you're a good person, your financial needs are going to be taken care of. The rich, they don't appreciate their money. They take it for granted. Anyway, they're basically repeating the same four things over and over to try to figure out where you are with each of these four. We're basically done. How, was this weird? This was a little weird, right? It was a strange one? This was fun for me today to take this test and realize that, um, okay, I am a saver, whatever that means. I want to fess up to something. The $10,000 credit card debt thing was not my wife doing it to me. It was the arrangement of our marriage was, see now, I feel like I'm going to cry again. See, I'm just warning you. The arrangement of our marriage was such that certain things stress me out and then I stress her out and she ends up figuring it out. So she was carrying that load by herself. That's how we got there.